Hello, Chappy Chaps. It's Mark from English on Command, and today we're going to read Chapter Three of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, I hope you remember who are hitchhikers. Do you? All right. So、uh, let's do a quick recap before we begin. Right in the first and second chapter, we got to know a person, Arthur Dent. It's a typical guy, a very normal person living somewhere in a village in Great Britain. His house was about to be destroyed because、uh, well, the local council wanted to be a road a bypass instead. Now Arthur Dent has a friend. His name, his name is、um, Ford Prefect. Now Ford Prefect is not. A human. In fact, he is an alien. He came to the planet to collect some data for the book, which is called Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Now, that's the book where you can learn anything about the galaxy, right? So that's all enough for now. And Arthur Dent doesn't know that Ford Prefect is not a, is not a human. That he doesn't know that.、Uh, right now, they are in a bar, in a pub. They are drinking because something is about to happen. All right, let's go. Chapter three. On this particular Thursday, something was moving quietly through the ionosphere, many miles above the surface of the planet. Several somethings, in fact, several dozen huge yellow, chunky, slab-like somethings, huge as office buildings, silent as birds. They soared with ease, basking in an electromagnetic rays from the star Sol, biding their time, grouping, preparing. The planet beneath them was almost perfectly oblivious of their presence, which was just how they wanted it for the moment. The huge yellow sunwings went unnoticed at Goonhilly. They passed over Cape Canaveral without a blip. Woomera and Jodrell Bank looked straight through them, which was a pity because it was exactly the sort of thing they had been looking for all these years. The only place they registered at all was on a small black device called a subethosensomatic, which winked away quietly to itself. It nestled in the darkness inside a leather satchel, which Ford Prefect wore habitually around his neck. The contents of Ford Prefect's satchel were quite interesting, in fact, and would have made an Earth physicist eyes pop out of their head. Which is why he always concealed them by keeping a couple of dog ears scripts for a place he pretended he was、uh, auditioning for stuffed、uh, in the top. Besides the subethosensomatic and the scripts, he had on electronic thumb a short, squat black rod, smooth and matte, with a couple of flat switches and dials at one end. Um, he also had a device which looked rather like a large electronic calculator. This had about a hundred tiny flat press buttons and a screen about four inches square, on which one of a million pages could be summoned at a moment's notice. It looked insanely complicated, and this was one of the reasons why the snug plastic cover it、uh, fitted into had the words "Don't Panic." Printed on it in large, friendly letters. The other reason was that this device was, in fact, that most remarkable of all the books ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor, *The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy*. The reason why it was published in the form of a micro-submarine electronic component is that if it were printed in normal book form, 
An interstellar hitchhiker would require several inconveniently large buildings to carry it around in. Bit of that, in Fort's prefect's satchel were a few bureaus, a notepad, and a lordish bath towel from Marks and Spencer. Now, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has a few things to say on the subject of towels. A towel, it says, is about the most massively useful thing an interstellar hitchhiker can have. Apparently, it has great practical value. You can wrap it around you for warmth as you bound across the cold moons of Jagon Beta. You can lie on it on the brilliant marble sanded beaches of Sanctuarius V, inhaling the heady sea vapors. You can sleep under it beneath the stars which shine so redly on the desert world of Karkrafun. Use it to sail a mini raft down a slow, heavy river mouth. Wet it for use in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Wrap it around your head to ward off nauseous fumes or to avoid the gaze of the ravenous bog-bladder beast of Thrall. A mind-bogglingly stupid animal, it assumes that if you can't see it, it can't see you. Daft is a bush, but very ravenous. You can wave your towel in emergencies as a distress signal. And of course, dry yourself off with it if it still seems to be clean enough. More importantly, a towel has immense psychological value. For some reason, if a strag, uh, a strag means a non-hitchhiker, discovers that a hitchhiker has his towel with him, he will automatically assume that he is also in possession of a toothbrush, face flannel, soap, peanut biscuits, flask, compass, map, ball of string, nest spray, wet weather gear, spacesuit, etc. And etc. And furthermore, this strag will then happily lend the hitchhiker any of this or a dozen of items that the hitchhiker might accidentally have lost. What the strag will think is that any man who can hitch Length and breadth of the galaxy, rough it, slum it, struggle against terrible odds, win through, and still knows where his towel is, is clearly a man to be reckoned with. Hence a phrase which has passed through Hitchhiker's land, as in, hey, your says is happy for a prefect? There's a fruit who really knows where his towel is. Sass. No, be aware of, meet, have sex with, hoopy, really together guy. Fruit, really amazingly together guy. Nettling quietly on top of the towel and for a prefix satchel, the Sabbath automatic began to wink more quickly. Miles above the surface of the planet, a huge yellow sunglass began to fan out. At Jodrell Bank, someone decided it was time for a nice, relaxing cup of tea. You got a towel with you, said prefix only to Arthur. Arthur, struggling through his third pint, looked round at him. <laughs> Why? <laughs> what? No, should I have? He had given up being surprised. There didn't seem to be any point any longer. Ford clicked his tongue in irritation. Drink up, he urged. At that moment, the dull sound of a rumbling crash from outside filtered through the low murmur of the pub. Through the sound of the jukebox, through the sound of the man next to Ford hiccuping over the whiskey Ford had eventually bought him. Arthur, choked on his beer, leapt to his feet. What's that? he yelled. Oh, don't worry, said Ford. They haven't started yet. 
Thank God for that, said Arthur and relaxed. It's probably just your house being knocked down, said Fred, drawing his last pin. What? What? shouted Arthur. Suddenly Ford's spell was broken. Arthur looked wildly around him and ran to the window. My god, they are! They are knocking my house down. What the hell am I doing in the pub, Ford? It hardly makes any difference at this stage, said Ford. Let them have their fun. Fun, yelled Arthur. Fun. <sighs> he quickly checked out of the window and again that they were talking about the same thing. Damn their fun! He hooded and ran out of the pub furiously waving a nearly empty beer glass. He made no friends at all in the pub that lunchtime. Stop you vandals! Your home records, Bull Arthur, you half-crazed Visigoths! Stop, will you? Ford would have to go after him, turning quickly to the barman he asked for uh, four packets of peanuts. There you are, sir, said the barman, slapping the packets on the bar. Twenty-eight pence, if you'll be so kind. Ford, in fact, was very kind. He gave the barman another five-pound note and told him to keep the change. The barman looked at it and then looked at Ford. He suddenly shivered. He experienced a momentary sensation that he didn't stand because no one on earth had ever experienced it before. In moments of great stress, every life form that exists gives out a tiny subliminal signal. The signal simply communicates an exact and almost pathetic sense of how far that being is uh, from the place of his birth. On Earth, it is never possible to be further than 16,000 miles from your birthplace, which really isn't very far. So such signals are too minute to be noticed. Ford Prefect was at this moment um, under great stress, and he was born 600 light years away in the near vicinity of Belgoose. The barman reeled for a moment, hit by a shocking, incomprehensible sense of distance. He didn't know that for a moment, but he looked at Ford Prefect with a new sense of respect, almost awe. Are you serious, sir? He said in a small whisper, which he had in fact started the pub. You think the world's going to end? Yes, said Ford. But this afternoon, Ford had recovered himself. He was at his flippest. Yes, he said gaily. In less than two minutes, I would estimate. Barman couldn't believe that conversation he was having. But he couldn't believe the sensation he had just had either. Isn't there anything we can do about it then? He said. No, nothing, said Ford, stuffing the penis in his pockets. Someone in the Hushed bar suddenly laughed rigorously at how stupid ever had become. The man sitting next to Ford was a beast by now. His eyes waved the arm to Ford. I thought, he said, that if the world was going to end, we were meant to lie down or put a paper bag over our head or something. If you like, yes, said Ford. That's what they told us in the army, said the man, and uh, his eyes began. Long track back down his whiskey. Will I help? said the barman. No, said Ford, and gave him a friendly smile. Excuse me, he said. I've got to go. With a wave, he left. The pub was silent for a moment longer, and then, embarrassingly enough, the man with the rocious laugh did it again. The girl he had dragged along to the pub with him had grown to love him dearly over the last hour or so. And it would probably have been a great satisfaction to her to know that in a minute and a half or so, he would suddenly evaporate in a whiff of hydrogen, ozone, and carbon monoxide. However, 
When the moment came, she would be too busy evaporating herself to notice it. The barman cleared his throat. He heard himself say, Last orders, please. The huge yellow machines began to sink downward and to move faster. Ford knew they were there. This wasn't the way he had wanted it. Right now, the late Arthur had nearly reached his house. He didn't notice how good it had suddenly become. He didn't notice the wind. He didn't notice the sudden irrational squall of rain. He didn't notice anything but the caterpillar bulldozers crawling over the rubble that had been his home. You barbarians, he yelled, I'll sue the council for every penny he's got. I'll have you hung, drawn and quartered, and whipped, and boiled until, until, until you've had enough. Ford was running after him very fast, very, very fast. And then I'll do it again, yelled Arthur. And when I finished, I will take all the little bits and I will jump on them. Arthur didn't notice that the men were running from the bulldozers. He didn't notice that Mr. Prosser was staring his testicle into the sky. What Mr. Prosser had noticed was that huge yellow sunfigs were screaming through the clouds. Possibly huge yellow sunfigs. And I will carry on jumping them, yell Arthur, still running until I get blisters so I can think of anything even more unpleasant to do. And then Arthur tripped and fell headlong rolled and landed flat on his back. This he noticed that something was going on. His finger shot upwards. What the hell is that? He shrieked. Whatever it was, raced across the sky in monstrous yellowness. Tore the sky apart with mind buggery noise and leapt off into the distance, leaving the gaping ear to shut behind it with a bang that drove your ears six feet into your skull. Another one followed and did the same thing, only louder. It's difficult to say exactly what the people on the surface of the planet were doing now because they didn't really know what they were doing themselves. None of it made a lot of sense. Run to houses, run out of houses, hauling nauseously in the house. All around the world, city streets exploded with people. Cars stood into each other as the noise fell on them and then rolled off like a tidal wave, hills and valleys. Desert and oceans seeming to flatten everything it hit. Only one man stood and watched the sky, stood with terrible sadness in his eyes and rubber banks in his ears. He knew exactly what was happening and had known his, ever since his subethosense of manic had started winking in the dead of night because his pillar had woken him with a star. It was what he had waited for all these years, but when he had deciphered the signal pattern, deciphered, I'm sorry guys, he had deciphered the signal pattern sitting alone in his small dark room, a coldness had grippled him and squeezed his heart. Of all the races in all the galaxy who could have come and said a big hello to planet Earth, he thought, didn't it just have to be the Vogons? Still, he knew what he had to do. As the Vulcan craft screamed through the air, high above him, he opened his satchel. He threw away a copy of Joseph and the amazing Technicolor dream coat. He threw away a copy of Godspell. He would need them where he was going. Everything was ready, everything was prepared. He knew where his towel was. A sudden silence hit the earth. If anything, it was worse than noise for, for a while now it happened. 
The great ships hung motionless in the air over every nation on earth. Motionless they hung, huge, heavy, steady in the sky, blasphemy against nature. Many people weren't straight into shock as their minds tried to encompass what they were looking at. The ships hung in the sky in much the same way that bricks don't. And still nothing happened. Then there was a slight whisper, a sudden spacious whisper of open ambient sound. Every hi-fi set in the world, every radio, every television, every cassette recorder, every woofer, every Twitter, every mid-range driver in the world quietly turned itself on. Everything and every dustbin, every window, every car, every wine glass, every sheet of rusty metal became activated as an acoustically perfect sounding board. Before the earth passed away, it was going to be treated to the very ultimate in sound reproduction, the greatest public address system ever built. But there was no concert, no music, no fanfare, just a simple message. People of Earth, your attention please. A voice said, and it was wonderful, wonderful, perfect, quadrophobic sound with distortion that was so low as to make a brave man weep. This is prosthetic Vulcan jets of the Galactic Hyperspace playing console, the voice continued. As you will no doubt be aware, the plans for development of the outlying regions of the galaxy require the building of a hyperspatial express route through a star system. And regrettably, your plan is one of those scheduled for demolition. The process will take slightly less than two of your Earth minutes. Uh, thank you. The PA died away. Uncomprehending terror settled on the watching people on Earth. The terror moved slowly through the gathered crowds as if they were iron filings on a sheet of board and a magnet was moving beneath them. Panic sprawled again, desperate, fleeing panic, but there was nowhere to flee to. Seven days, the Vulcans turned on the pig again and said, There is no point acting all surprised about it. All the planning charts and demolition orders have been displayed in your local planning department, Alpha Centauri, for 50 of your Earth years. So you've had plenty of time to lodge any formal complaint, and it's far too late to start making a fuss about it now. The PA fell silent again and its echo drifted off across the land. The huge ships turned slowly in the sky with easy power. On the other side of each, a hatchway opened, an empty black space. By this time, somebody, somewhere, must have manned a radio transmitter, located a wavelength and broadcast a message back to the Vulcan ship to plead on behalf of the planet. Nobody ever heard what they said. They only heard the reply. The PA slammed back into life again and voice was annoyed, it said. What do you mean you've never been to Alpha Centauri? For heaven's sake, mankind, it's only four last years away, you know. I'm sorry, but if you can't be bothered to take an interest in local affairs, that's your own lookout. Energize demolition beams. Light poured out in the hatchways. I don't know, said the voice on the PA. Apathetic, bloody planet. I have no sympathy at all. It cut off. There was a terrible, ghastly silence. There was a terribly ghastly noise. There was a terrible, ghastly silence. The Vogan constructor fleet goes away into inky, starry 
void. Alright guys, this is the end of chapter 3. Next day will be chapter 4. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed the, the, uh, the book. I hope you are enjoying the book. Have a good day. Bye.